This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the effects of climate change are here to stay. We'll discuss the government's options for building resiliency and adapting to hurricanes, forest fires, and other climate disasters. Then, the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund provides payments to those injured or who lost loved ones in the terror attacks. But long wait times were a big problem. That's until one federal employee stepped in. And the government gets involved in gaming, how the Air Force is using video games to boost morale and improve relationships. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the federal government. I'm Mimi Gerges. President Biden has called climate change an emergency and has vowed to take bold steps to fight it. My guest says that in addition to mitigation measures, taking steps to prepare for and adapt to the reality of climate change is imperative. Alice Hill is senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and former senior director for resilience policy at the U.S. National Security Council. Alice, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me, Mimi. Delighted to join you. So what's your assessment on the president's climate agenda so far? Well, the president has done a great deal in a very difficult, uh, forgive the pun, uh, climate uh, because we are a very divided nation uh, with regard to what should be done about the extreme events that occur as a result of human-caused global warming. He has accomplished a number of things, but this problem is enormous. It's not going away. And it's something that needs to be addressed now to reverse and reduce severe impacts in the future. Responding to climate change is going to cost a lot of money. You write it's actually more expensive than spending the money now to prepare. Absolutely. We know that if we invest in the reduction of risk, and what does that mean? That means building houses that are elevated to avoid floodwaters. It means tying down roofs so they don't get ripped off when a hurricane comes through. It means taking measures to prevent wildfires. We know that for every dollar we spent in that kind of risk reduction, we can save anywhere from uh, a few dollars to $11 under studies that the federal government has done itself. So if we can spend now, we can save later. And the challenge right now is we approach this problem from the reverse. We do the cleanup, use federal taxpayer dollars to do the cleanup, and we don't give the proper incentives to reduce the risk ahead of time because communities and homeowners know the, know the federal government's gonna come back and help them, or at least they believe they will, and so they often don't make the necessary investments. Well, Alice, tell us a little bit more about that because you, you say that financial policies themselves need to change. Explain that. Well, we have developed a system uh, where we have uh, essentially what some have called climate bailouts. So we have communities making the decisions under our constitution as to how and where to build. So that's their building codes and their zoning laws. So they allow building, for example, in a flood zone, or they have building codes that are outdated and do not reflect the growing risks from climate change. A huge disaster occurs, there's widespread destruction, 
And what we've seen is Congress, both sides, Republican and Democrat, when their when their communities are hit, they want the federal government to help those communities. It's natural, and all of us want to go help those communities. And so we give a bailout. And then, in some instances, those communities build back in a very similar way to where they were before. So if another wildfire comes through or another big storm comes through, that community suffers further damage. We need to change that incentive and encourage communities to build strongly in advance of these events so that they reduce the damages on the back end. What, as we what said, kind of incentives? Savings. What kind of incentives, so Alice? Because you know sometimes they're they're just private developers. They want to build on the coast because that's the the most valuable, but that coastline might eventually be underwater. So what can the government do? Well, if they're building on the coast, uh, if there's if it's residential property, they're probably hoping that the National Flood Insurance Program will be underwriting uh, the flood insurance for those areas. So uh, FEMA has been trying to address this, but we need to make sure that the flood insurance policy premiums reflect the true risk. Uh, we can also look to seeing uh, that we um, hold developers liable uh, for a longer period of time for the damage that may, may be caused to that building uh, if it is not uh, built uh, to be resistant to the foreseeable events. We can also hold the communities liable and insist that they have disaster resistant building codes in place that will reduce the damage and before they are entitled to receive any federal monies to underwrite development in this area. So it's a matter of saying we don't want federal taxpayer dollars to support development in areas that we know are at risk unless that development is done in a way that is safe going forward and will reduce the harm both to the risk of loss of life and the risk to the property. You, you write that the federal government needs to make data more accessible to the public. What's the issue now and, and how is that impacting the ability to, to respond to climate change? Well, let's say you want to rent or buy a property. Um, it Historically in the past, it's been very difficult to find out what's the flood history. In some states, we have no requirements of disclosure of flood risk, even though we have a heavy flooding problem. Uh, you may not know whether the property's ever suffered a fire. You may not know what the projections are, because of course, with climate change, the facts uh, are, becoming more um, or the events going forward are more serious and you don't have information about what that looks like. There are some private philanthropic driven databases now available to the public. If you go on Zillow, you can find out some of the risk factors for property. Uh, but we need the federal government to step in and do the kind of mapping uh, and wildfire for wildfire uh, better flood mapping so that anyone can access uh, this information for anywhere in the United States, including projections for what climate change will bring to their community. And we have that data. It's just a matter of organizing it and making it easily accessible. The philanthropic efforts are great, but we want to make sure we have a steady source of, it, of this information so that everyone can be prepared. All right. Well, Alice, I certainly hope we take your recommendations and uh, get this under control. Thanks so much for being on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me.
Coming up, the woman who had the monumental task of improving processing times for the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. We'll be right back. The September 11th Victim Compensation Fund has helped pay out billions of dollars to individuals dealing with the long-term impacts of the terror attacks. But the fund has faced many major challenges. Former Special Master Rupa Bhattacharya at the Justice Department turned that program around. She's also a finalist for a Service to America Award. Rupa, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So first, can you talk a bit about the history of the fund and where it was when you joined in 2016? Sure. So the, the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund was created immediately after the attacks occurred in 2001. It was set up in October in its first incarnation. That was the fund that was operated by Special Master Ken Feinberg, and it paid out over $7 billion to over 5,000 people, but it closed in 2004. And it was it was originally responsible for compensating the people who were immediately impacted, those who were on the buildings, those who were in the planes. Um, by 2011, it had become clear that the tragedy of September 11th was not over. People were continuing to get sick as a result of exposure to the toxins that were released um, by the plane crashes at all three crash sites. And so Congress created the Congress reopened the fund. Uh, but at the time, no one knew how many people had been exposed. No one knew how many people would ultimately get sick. No one knew how many conditions might um, actually be connected to 9-11 exposure. And so the fund was set up for five years with a very limited pot of money. And in 2016, it had just been renewed for five more years. Um, it had originally been slated to close in 2016 but in 2015 congress renewed it for five more years and that's when i came in um to try to figure out what was happening with the fund to try to figure out how to get money to these claimants more quickly and really essentially to try to figure out how many claimants there might ultimately be um, that needed compensation but rupa at the time uh claim processing was taking three plus years i mean how could it possibly get that bad it, you know, it's, it's a combination of a number of factors. Uh, it, it took a long time for the fund to get set up and started, and a lot of that work came in handy very much later for us. But there, there are a lot of relationships that needed to be built. The Victims' Compensation Fund gets a lot of information from other entities, from other federal agencies, from a lot of the state and local entities, particularly in New York City. A lot of those relationships and information sharing arrangements had to be built in those early years. But it was slow to get off the ground um, for, for a whole variety of reasons. And one of my main goals when I came in was to make it go faster. It needed to go faster. So um, then, then the how did you do that, Rupa? You know, I like to say we took the program apart and we put it back together again. I mean, we essentially rebuilt the program from the ground up. Uh, we, we revised the claim form so that we were getting better information. We did a bunch of outreach and education efforts with the claimant populations, with advocacy groups, with attorneys, so that they could get us better information and understood what we needed and what sorts of documents um, were necessary. We did um, a lot of policy making um, and we created a set of guidelines that would be used in the first instance to evaluate claims so that claim reviewers didn't approach every claim as though they were starting from scratch. Um, 
but one, we've built in enough flexibility so we can make distinction when needed, but um, we really tried to streamline the process. We ramped up our, um, our staffing uh, to bring on more people. And and made a, and just made a number of changes in the, in the process to try to make it go faster, and we succeeded. Um, by the time uh, after after several years, it did take a while, but we are now down to um, getting claims decided within a year of when they were filed, which was our goal. So you mentioned the challenge of funding earlier from Congress. During your time, the program was set to expire and was running out of money. So how did you address that issue? So it, it, it was a it was a it was a rough decision for me to make. I, it was probably the hardest decision I've ever made in my government career. Uh, we we could tell that we were not going to have enough money to compensate all of the claims that we anticipated getting, um, and the statute directed the special master to make policy changes to accommodate that to ensure that we did not run out of money and so we create we 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 put in place a process where we first went out to the community, um, to the claimants, to their attorneys, to the advocacy groups, and asked for comment. Um, we wanted to know how they thought we should deal with this problem. And we also wanted to be very transparent about what we were doing and make sure people understood why we thought we were running out of money, what ways we might address that. And ultimately, we made the decision that we would need to cut awards. And we ultimately, we did cut awards by uh, starting in February of 2019 by 50% um, with a um, anticipating that future awards would need to be cut even more in order to stay within the funding cap that we had. Thankfully, we never got to that point because Congress then reauthorized the fund for a second time, uh, giving us all the money that we needed. And Rupa, you know, toxic exposure can be very hard to prove. So how do claimants prove that their illness was due to exposure from the 9-11 attacks? So that's a very good question, and thankfully one that the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund doesn't actually have to deal with. Um, we are the lawyers, not the doctors. Um, we have a sister program over at the Department of Health and Human Services, which is the World Trade Center Health Program. It's run out of the National Institutes for Occupational Safety and Health, and they make the medical determinations about which claims are related to 9-11 exposure. Um, they provide medical treatment for those claims. And so in addition to our compensation program, the federal government also has a medical treatment program for these victims. And so we rely on their determinations of 9-11 relatedness. All right, well, Rupa, thank you so much for joining us and being on the program. I appreciate it, thank you so much. Coming next, a couple of airmen turned a hobby into a platform to bring together service members from all over the world. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. What started as a few airmen bonding over their love of video games has turned into an Air Force-sanctioned program. During an industry conference earlier in Chicago, I spoke with one of the founders of Air Force Gaming, Zach Bauman. Zach, welcome to the program. Thank you, thank you. Well, I'll just say I'm a gamer, and I grew up with my mom yelling at me, you know, to get in the van for church, you know, wasn't ready to get off whatever I was playing, and uh, as I've grown up, I, I always just thought, man, those were great times. I made great friends, I had great experiences, I played outside as well, but I just loved gaming. 
And uh, then I went to grad school a couple years ago and I did a project on gaming, the industry and where it's at now. And I was kind of very reminiscent as I did that project. And it really opened my eyes and said, wow, this, this industry has not gone anywhere, it's booming. And I said, what's the Air Force doing about this? Um, and so right about that time, I found a friend on LinkedIn who had Air Force Gaming in his, his profile. And at that time, it was somewhat of just an idea. Um, and so we connected very quickly. I said, hey, I want in whatever you're doing. Um, and from there, you know, he had, he had kind of the very early rumblings of a community and approaching gaming in the Air Force uh, simply to connect people. Um, and we saw the hole that wasn't there. Um, and so, yeah, we just, we said, hey, okay, you know, there's other people that are interested in this. The internet helped us find more people, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, and yeah, once we started kind of the, the Discord, which is kind of like Slack for gamers, um, the word kind of spread and it continued to spread. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing, and mostly young people, but for those that are older, it's been very cool. You know, there are chiefs, you know, in the Discord. Uh, we had a general who I escorted in, you know, digitally, um, but they're mostly young people, um, people who kind of have grown up with technology. You know, this is how they communicate when they're not in uniform, and so it's been cool to create something that looks just like, you know, their social life, but it's affiliated with the military. Yeah, so we were all volunteers, we were all grassroots in the early days, just spending our own time and resources to create something for airmen and guardians to connect on and share you know, the love of gaming with. Uh, but it, I think it was the November of 2020, uh, the Air Force uh, kind of relaunched us and you know, they took our, our, uh, our old rickety vehicle and they bought us a new one and, get, and let us keep a set of keys. And so that, that's kind of how I would describe it. There's a few core members who actually work their day jobs to you know, facilitate a lot of the programming, but the majority are actually just still volunteers and they, they will continue to be. It's just the model that we found works great. You know, people want to you know, be the community manager of this game or they want to work on marketing stuff. And so it's, it's exciting to have something outside of your normal job. Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, we all work too much, you know, and Air Force Gaming started as a crazy idea because we, we would meet with high up government folks and they'd say, okay, what's your vision, mission? Say, we just want to connect people. And, so, and often that was like not quite enough, you know, it's maybe not quantitatively captured enough. And so, but we pushed with that and it's been amazing to actually see that emerge as the core mission still. Um, and then we've seen all these byproducts without having to focus on them. When you talk about recruiting, you talk about um, talent management and even just um, motivation and, and job interest. I think that's what I mean when you're having fun and doing what you love, actually that, that makes a great uh, worker, you know, a great service member. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got tons of new friends now through that community of all different skill sets you know because the Air Force and I work in in my day job to farm out people in their different job specialties but we don't always get that right and so someone might be a, a defender of security forces who loves marketing you know they wish they were public affairs we've got blogs and guest writers who you know come under the mentorship of real public affairs folks 
and we post Air Force-wide articles, you know, from cops, you know. And so, like, there's some, some little early use cases of what talent management could kind of look like in the future that's a little more flexible and a little more um, malleable to what we need and what people want. Yeah, so in the gaming world, if anyone's ever seen Ready Player One, you know, uh, you get to create your character and no one asks you why you have red hair, you know, like, or have a beard or whatever you, or you're a troll, you know. There's no, it's just, oh, that's, that's them. That's fully them. And, and from the outside, it looks like we're being artificial when we create these characters, but I actually think it's the flip. We're, we're our full self. We're who we want to be. And I think that's really important, and it's, it's not questioned or, or judged. Um, so I think, yeah, without rank, you've got little airmen asking questions. You know, young airmen, I should say. <laughs> I'm a little officer. Um, young airmen asking questions in our channels, which we have for all different topics. And then no matter your rank, you can chime in and, and have some feedback or advice. And oftentimes, those are higher ranks who you wouldn't get to talk to maybe in your first assignment right away. Um, so yeah, the power of the internet, a lot of people bag on the anonymity, but I think there's, there's a side to it that's actually really cool. Yeah, I mean, like anything. There's, uh, you know, if I eat too many sugar cookies, I'm gonna have a stomachache and maybe not sleep so well. Um, someone asked me at a different conference after one of my talks and said, Hey, my airman, uh, you know, is up all night drinking Mountain Dews, the, you know, the classic story. I'm like, sounds like you need to have a feedback session. You know, it's like, what are you asking me about your airman's problem? You know, if they're drinking or they're doing something that's bad for their health, like you need to have a feedback session and kind of get them some, some handrails. Um, so I treat it just like anything else. I'm not, I'm not out here, um, you know, campaigning that ga endless gaming is the future, but I'm just saying that what is happening um, is a lot more than people think at first sight. All right, Zach, nice yeah. to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the program. Uh, thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, 
and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.